Welcome back, everyone, to the afternoon program of the session. The next panel, titled Building Cohesion in a Multi-Ethnic Environment, will be moderated by my esteemed colleague and fellow research associate, Mr. Leonard Lim from IPS. Mr. Leonard, the floor is yours. Thanks, Shamil. I think I have the, probably the toughest job today because all of you are probably full after lunch, tired after listening to some engaging insights in the, first, in the morning. So I thought I would just set the context again with some short remarks of what we are speaking about today. Uh, over the weekend, many of you might have watched the World Cup final, football World Cup final. Uh, if you didn't, France won, and they won with a very multicultural team. Uh, one of the most multicultural teams in the competition. 17 or 16 of the 23 players actually could trace their roots outside of France and could have played for another country. Yet, back home in France itself, the country is mired in long-standing debates over issues of race, identity, immigration, integration, very difficult social issues. So as French of all stripes and all backgrounds took to the streets of Paris and other cities to celebrate the World Cup win, various commentators have expressed hopes that this World Cup win will be a springboard for a new beginning for France. One of the, the key players in the French team, he was asked about the multicultural aspects of their team and he had this to say. His name is Antoine Griezmann, the white guy. Uh, even though he's white, he's also, he's also a half German and half Portuguese. Okay? So Antoine Griezmann says, that's the France we love, different origins, but we are all united. In our team, there are many players who come from different horizons, but we have the same state of mind. As soon as you wear the jersey, we play together. I also speak from personal experience in how uh, playing sports can unite a very diverse group of individuals. So I would never be able to make it to the World Cup. Uh, probably Singapore won't also in our lifetimes. But uh, I was fortunate that in, our, in my school days, I was part of a a team that was very, very diverse. We had, uh, this is a black and white picture. It shows my age. Uh, we had people from, uh, we had Chinese, we had Malays, we had Indians, we had a Eurasian captain as well. This was my sports team in junior college. So we forged very close friendships through training and uh, eating together and playing together and laughing together. Uh, our common goal was to beat everyone else. Like that French team, we just wanted to beat everyone else and win the championship. So that united us. We had a very strong sense of unity because of that. So this unity has continued long after our school days. Uh, I've gone for Malay weddings. Uh, some of them got married. I've gone for uh, Hari Raya open house. I've even gone to a Hindu funeral because one of them unfortunately died. Uh, okay, but just like this black and white photo, I think the world has changed from the time when I was a student. Uh, I think Dr. Noshra Wilsat uh, alluded to this earlier in his session. Now we are seeing increasing religiosity, uh, decreased social mixing, uh, segregationist or exclusivist practices, like Dr. Sat said, Dr. Noshra Wilsat said earlier, uh, on the rise. And this has an impact on our social cohesion if it's allowed to take root. So what might Singapore look like, for example, if we do not eat at the same table as those who do not have the same dietary restrictions or requirements as us, for, for instance. Uh, this panel, the, coming up soon, will discuss these pertinent and very important issues. We'll talk about what sort of policies we can have that will enlarge our shared spaces as Singaporeans. What are the shared experiences or reference points we can turn to 
that can bring us together to rise above our differences. I'll now, I'll now just introduce our three speakers. Each of them have played instrumental roles in uh, furthering the cause of uh, interracial harmony and interfaith understanding in their respective organizations. Our first speaker, Dr. Hon Chu Wing, he retired from heading Hua Chong Institution last year. He spent 35 years there, first as a physics teacher, rising up to head the science department, and finally to principal. He joined Chinese High in 1982, three years after he became a SEP school. Our second speaker, Dr. Sharifa Mariam Aljunit, she's a lead facilitator at OnePeople.sg, as well as a chartered psychologist. She has facilitated numerous experiential conversations on issues of race and ethnicity organized by OPSG over the years. Her great-great-great-grandfather, Aleb philanthropist Syed Omar Ali Aljunit, built Singapore's first mosque, Masjid Omar Kampong Malacca. Uh, this is somewhere near the Sharia family courts, if you're familiar with it, Heflong area. He also donated the land on which St. Andrew's Cathedral stands to the Anglican community. Our final speaker, Mohammed Urshad Abbas, is a founder and president of Roses of Peace, a youth-driven, ground-up, non-profit organization that seeks to strengthen religious harmony here. He set it up when he was an SMU student in 2012. Since then, it has reached out to over 40,000 people and engaged over 2,000 youths. They hold interfaith conferences, youth forums, and they unite it the aim is to unite people from different backgrounds and build social cohesion in Singapore. Without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our first speaker, Dr. Hon. Dr. Hon, please. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. I think uh, thanks uh, for having me today. I think IPS must be thinking after retirement, I'm very free, nothing to do. So keep me occupied. But actually, not true. Huh? So retirement has been very interesting. I, so uh, when I received this invitation, the first thing that came to my mind is that I should ask the current principal of Hua Chong to come and talk to you. But on second thought, I thought, hey, this might be a too sensitive uh, issue, right? So may, he may not be comfortable talking to you in a public setting like this. So I accepted the invitation because I can say whatever I want and after that I can just run away and nobody can catch me. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background before we have this uh, discussion later on. Uh, Chinese High School has, uh, will be celebrating 100th anniversary next year. So we are 99 years old this year. Right? Uh, when it was first started, I think uh, the mission of the school was very simple. It was supposed to uh, provide education to uh, immigrants from China. A uh, very simple mission, just to provide education for immigrants' children. So the school was doing well for some time, but when it comes to about 1960s to 70s especially, it went downhill. Reason was very simple. At that time, many parents choose to send uh, their kids to English schools, knowing very well that if they send their kids to Chinese school, eventually they may have difficulty finding jobs. So it was really difficult to, uh, to recruit st uh, students in the 70s. Many Chinese schools had to close down. So I think our government saw that and uh, the then PM decided that we should have a special scheme 
to turn Chinese school into bilingual school, and uh, that was the beginning of SAP scheme. So Chinese High was one of the schools, uh, one of the nine schools selected to be a uh, SAP school. So at the time, we worked very hard, and uh, I, if you have read the history of the school, you find that uh, uh, both teachers and students worked very, very hard during that period because they have to switch from Chinese curriculum to English uh, curriculum. Today, uh, Hua Chong is quite different. Our mission is to nurture leaders in three areas, uh, research industry and government, and we make it a point to, to remind our students the reason why we nurture them is because we want the, them to serve the nation. And we kept our culture and the values, right? So now the school is a bilingual, bicultural school, and the, the two core values that we have been holding on uh, right from day one are these two uh, core values, zi qiang bu xi and ying sui si yan. Zi qiang bu xi essentially means never say die, okay? So it's about uh, self-renewal, constant self-renewal. It comes with uh, innovation, it comes with resilience. Ying Sui Si Yen simply means uh, we remember our benefactor. So we always re remind our kids to give back to society, give back to the donation when they are successful. So these are the two core values. And it's precisely these are the core values that our leaders uh, saw in, uh, in our school, that we want to keep these schools as SAP school. Now, these are some of our students. They are familiar faces, all right? So we have uh, Wicked, uh, Hong Tan, Chi Ming, all these are students in the 80s, right? In the 1980s. First few years, first 10 years of SAP scheme. In fact, uh, uh, Wicked and Chi Ming uh, were my students. I taught them physics, right? So uh, today, you find that, hey, uh, they are able to work, work with uh, people from all walks of life, right? There's no difficulty at all, though they were from SAP school. So SAP school at that time was really very Chinese, right? So in fact, 99% um, of the time, they spoke Chinese, right? But today, it's a bit different. Uh, if you look at SAP schools in Hua Chong for the last 10 years, there are lots of activities that, uh, um, that involve uh, people from different communities. Right? Our students celebrate Labor's Day with our own, uh, uh, our own estate staff, right? and they have uh, joint research projects. Like, and this is, this is the one, a joint research project with uh, students from different schools. Uh, we, 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 we give uh, talks to uh, our students, actually conduct uh, workshops for students from different, uh, different schools, and uh, our students even go to mosques to, uh, to observe breakfast. Right? So these are some of the activities, and uh, as compared to 30 years ago, I think students in, uh, in Hua Chong now uh, are very much exposed to different culture. The, this, we believe in uh, this five minds for the future. Right? Uh, one of the minds is respectful mind. In fact, uh, we make it a point to tell our students that uh, we should welcome differences between human individuals tries to understand other communities and seek to work effectively with them. Because we know very well that in time to come, when they were to leave schools and work in the community, they have no choice but to work with people from all walks of life. They have to work with people from all different cultures, right? including people from other countries. So respectful mind is something that they must acquire. How do we do that? 
activities, there are all kinds of activities. You know, in, within Singapore, we invite a lot of people come to come to schools. In fact, every month, we have some form of activities where we can work with uh, students uh, from uh, different schools. We open up our sabbaticals program, for example. Every, every 10 weeks, we have one week put aside for sabbaticals, and uh, that sabbatical week, we open to students from our cluster schools. So students from those schools can come and uh, learn together with our students. And we go out for, for let's say, uh, uh, OBS together with students from other schools. And uh, we go for community service with uh, students from ITE, for example. Right? And uh, there are groups of students who go to uh, uh, Patapi's uh, children's home and work with them uh, on uh, things like uh, um, tuition, mathematics tuitions, and so on. So these are some of the activities that we have. And on their own, students also work on uh, very interesting community projects. This particular project is called Project Integrates. They actually help uh, migrant workers right, to integrate them into our society right, by having activities like uh, library visits, concerts, and fundraising. And some of the students uh, in this photograph you can see, these are MRT uh, stations uh, worker. Okay? You know, Tankaki Station is just next to our, our school. Huh? So we appreciate the fact that all these migrant workers come to Singapore and, uh, and really construct an MRT station for us. So our students make it a point to invite them for dinner uh, and uh, interact with them uh, so that we show our appreciation. By having that kind of interaction, I think uh, they learn to, to respect uh, different culture at the same time learn to interact with them. Right? Or, of course, the last three years I've been actively involved in Purple Parade. Right? So our kids have uh, been uh, actively uh, working with people with uh, special needs. Uh, besides working with people within Singapore, I think we invite a lot of people from uh, other parts of the world to come in to work with us. At the same time, we send our students all over the world to interact with people from a totally different culture. Right? Over here, I have some examples of people going over to US, uh, China, UK, Australia, and uh, we bring in people who are uh, maybe uh, who are talented in science to attend our, our Nobel Forum. So all these are platforms that we, we create for our students to interact with people from different uh, cultural backgrounds. And a few years ago, we, feel that, uh, we felt that uh, it's time for us to really ask ourselves, uh, how is our cultural intelligence? How is our students' cultural intelligence having gone through Hua Chong for four years or six years? Right? So we adopted uh, David Livermore's uh, CQ model. Right? This model has four dimensions, motivation, knowledge, strategy, and behavior. It was a longitudinal study. Right? So this is, let me share with you some of the results. We took a pretest when the students were in SEC2, when after they've uh, come in for about a year. So we gave them a pretest, and uh, two years later, when they reached SEC4, we gave them a post test. You can see the difference, right? So the, all the four domains of, uh, of this uh, CQ test have gone up significantly. What does it mean by 69, 74, and so on? Let me share with you the word norm. So they mean by the time our students come to SEC4, they have gone through quite a number of activities, quite a number of uh, programs that uh, require them to work with people from different uh, cultural backgrounds. This is the results. Compared to the world norm, we are significantly higher than the world norm. The world norm data come from people who are adults, huh? okay? And ours is only SEC4. SEC4, it means 16 years old, right? We compare our 16 years old students with adults in different parts of the world, and we, we found that 
our students' CQ, especially for knowledge, is very much higher uh, than uh, the, the world norm. 74 compared to 54. Right? And strategy-wise, strategy means uh, when you, they plan carefully, whether a student plan carefully before they, uh, they interact with people from different cultural backgrounds. So again, 74 versus 67, significantly higher statistically. Right? And for the action, uh, whether our kids know how to uh, change a verbal or non-verbal behavior when they interact with people from different cultures, again, we are significantly higher than the world norm. So uh, we, we felt uh, comfortable that our students, having gone through uh, all these programs in our school, they are actually quite comfortable and they, they really respect uh, people from different uh, backgrounds. Uh, different cultural backgrounds, and uh, they are all ready to collaborate with people from uh, any country, any, any uh, racial or religious group. This is uh, something that we are quite comfortable with. So I must thank IPS for giving me this opportunity to share with you that uh, Hua Chong today, compared to 30 years ago, we are quite different. Uh, from a Chinese school catered to Chinese immigrants' education, Today, we are a bilingual, bicultural school with a very global perspective. So, uh, for those of you who have been reading about uh, Hua Chong, you still remember Chinese High as a community school. I think uh, it's about time that you change your mindset. We are quite different today. Okay? So, uh, having uh, given you this background, I'm ready to interact with you later on at the, at the forum. Right, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Hoon. And thank you, IPS, for giving me the opportunity and Ron Kavadoyashi. They are, in fact, uh, one of our strongest supporters of Rose of Peace. Pull of hands, uh, because I know we are after lunchtime and everyone's feeling sleepy. You can just see by the you know, slouching <laughs> faces. How many of you guys have heard of Rose of Peace? Not from the booklet, la, you know, even before that. <laughs> you know, Rose of Peace essentially is a grown-up initiative. Uh, we started this back in 2012, uh, myself being involved in it uh, from the onset. Um, I think you can read more about how the initial formation of Rose of Peace is online, but I think uh, for the purpose of this discussion, I'll focus on you know, some of the highlights that I think uh, we can draw conclusion from based on our journey. So I'll, I'll, I'll just focus on those. So we like to say, you know, spreading peace, love, and harmony in Singapore, one rose at a time, because that's what we do. We started off with our signature initiative by giving out roses. But before that, let me just focus on the values that uh, drive us at Rose of Peace. Uh, essentially, it's, we are driven by peace, love, and harmony. I think as, uh, as nice sounding as it is, I think it's important that you know, to build a peaceful community, we have to you know, exemplify it through our actions. And for that, uh, we promote through the giving out of roses, we attach a greeting card. I think uh, I, I brought a sample greeting card, you can have a look. With the attached greeting card, saying of peace from all the different religious leaders. So I think it's important because end of the day, when you take out the labels of whoever said whatever quote, uh, you know, whichever religious leaders, for instance, Jesus Christ, Gautama Buddha, Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, and, and uh, even from the Bhagavad Gita, the message is the same. It's one that, are, that is of peace and harmony and love and kindness and compassion. So that's something that we wanted to you know, bring across through our initiative. And love, you know, to appreciate and respect all faith communities through understanding our differences. Because end of the day, we can't be the same. Uh, we have to recognize the fact that all of us are distinct and we have to cherish our differences and work across religious divides. 
because we need to live harmoniously. That's the third value that we uh, espouse. It's strengthening the social fabric of a society by recognizing and leverages on similarities. So we try to do this by different activities, by enlarging the common spaces, which I'll share, share later on. And uh, how we started Roses of Peace is really, uh, you know, you'll be surprised. It started off in 2012, um, you know, that uh, when in the aftermath of Charlie Hebdo. Uh, how many of you guys know Charlie Hebdo, the caricature against Prophet Muhammad? You know, I'm trying to you know, raise participation level because everyone's feeling <laughs> a bit dull. Um, so in, in the aftermath, what happened was I was an SMU student, 2012, and I was approached by a senior of mine who wanted to do a protest at the campus because she was very angry with what was going on in the Western media, especially with the vilification of Muslims and sort of, uh, you know, the global up uproar to the innocence of the Muslim video that was again, uh, that was released on YouTube in America, as well as the aftermath uh, af after the video when we had the caricature against Prophet Muhammad that was published by Charlie Hebdo in France. So in that incident, she wanted to protest and, and I was taken aback because I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, leading one of the societies in SMU and, and people were asking me uh, to endorse the protests. And how can you do that in Singapore? What is, you know, you're going to get into trouble, right? Because I just started a society. I was at that time heading the political association and the Muslim society because two very volatile, uh, you know, organization. So which means that uh, I, I wanted to get a sense of how these students were reacting. And a lot of them, they were pent up, they were very angst about how things were taking shape in the world. And they wanted to show the displeasure. And I said, why don't you gather friends who are keen and how they are interested about, you know, to do something about this. So why don't you take a step back? Because she wanted to protest because to show that Islam is a peaceful religion, but we can do it through other means, right? So that's how the whole concept and the idea of roses came up. We thought, how about we give out roses with the attached greeting card with saying of peace? And that is to exemplify the, the spirit and the essence of, uh, you know, the message that Prophet Muhammad came with. And then we realized that we live in a multi-religious, multicultural society. We don't want to be seen as proselytizing or we're not promoting one religion or another. And this is something uniquely Singapore that we have to guard. How do we show that? By including quotes of all the different faith luminaries, Jesus Christ, uh, Gautama Buddha from the Sikh tradition, Guru Nanak, from, uh, you know, uh, Bhagavad Gita and, and Confucius and all the faith uh, religious uh, leaders. So when we did that, what happened was naturally we pulled together youth from all walks of life, regardless of race or religion. We started off focusing on religion, but we realized that we can't proceed as it is because race is also intricately linked to religion. And that's why we formed the strong partnership OPSG and they've been supporting us, uh, you know, for, for, some, for some time. So this is how we started. We see this nice photo here. I think, uh, is Dr. Janus still around? <laughs> so he's the one at the tip of the heart. Uh, we give out roses, literally we give out roses, uh, as I shared with you, but it doesn't just include just giving out roses, we train the volunteers, because these volunteers are from all walks of life. When we started out 2012, we gave out 3,000 roses, we had about 100 volunteers. But over the years, you know, most recently we have grown, and most recently last year we gave out 10,000 roses across Singapore. Um, in an annual event, in, in a one day, you know, simultaneously we give out in 20 locations, we have about 300 volunteers that we mobilize. And, and and happy to say that over the years, uh, you know, we didn't expect to grow. It was a natural progression. Like I say, it's a grown-up initiative. We weren't even planning to register our organization. We initiated in 2012. We weren't even registered until last year. 
And, and why we, reg we had to register? Because we had our patron who came on board, uh, Madam Halima Yaakob. So, and, and that was just before she took office. So my friend was saying, Richard, you better register yourself. I said, why? You can't have a patron for a grown-up initiative. You're not registered. So it was really a, a, a reactionary uh, move, how we have grown and how we have progressed over the years. And we have also seen a natural uh, uh, you know, inclination by our youth to come forward because it's a grown-up initiative. And they feel that we are non-partisan, we are not you know, uh, fronting any agenda, they know who we are, they know us, and they can relate naturally to us. So what, what we do before we give out the roles, we train them, uh, because it's, it's not just important to just give out the roles, but they have to be trained on you know, mindful communication, on cross-cultural communication, on why they do this, and we w basically want to bring together youth from different religious backgrounds and racial backgrounds and social classes. And, you know, like uh, Dr. Huno was saying, from SAP schools as well as madrasas, from all walks of life, bring together, give them the platform to discuss issues as well as to make friendship. And, and thankfully, um, I'm, I'm happy to say that since 2012, many of these youth have kept coming back to us. So we have engaged about 2,000 volunteers over the, uh, over the years, and they have formed strong bonds and friendship. And uh, it doesn't just stop there, just training them, but packing of the roses is very important because these roses have to be packed. And we inbuilt team-building activities, uh, you know, through our activities whereby they, they come together and, and regardless of the race or religion and differences, they, they have to pack 3,000 roses or 10,000 roses last year in about one day. And that's not an easy feat. Eh? Um, and I'm glad that we managed to pull it off. But this is something that, you know, we are, it's very enlightening, it's very heart, uh, you know, heartwarming to see hundreds of volunteers, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Sikhs from all other religions under one roof, motivating each other as they pack thousands of, thousands of roses. And at the end of the day, they have a really good time, fun time, they take selfies, they post online. So why I'm sharing with you all these things, this is essentially what Grown Up Initiative is. It's very natural, it's very progressive. They call in their friends, they call in their families, they call in their uh, you know, relatives even, their uncles and aunties and grandparents. So they come together to volunteer and to lend their time for a common cause. And we don't just stop there. After they give out the roses, they have an appreciation dinner because youth, especially today, when you talk about religious and racial harmony, it's always the same faces that you see over and over again in events and, and forums and dialogues. So in order for, in, because what we want to do is attract new people. So when we appreciate the efforts, we are having appreciation dinner after they've given out, it really brings together more people and they bring in their friends the following, uh, you know, subsequent years. And that's what we have been able to do. And what's really started off as just an annual event, what happened was the, you know, the, the, there was a lot of demand for it. You know, we have people from you know, various organizations, various institutions, and, 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 and you know, sort of uh, uh, asking us, can you do roles of peace in our community, etc. So what we essentially do is to build safe spaces. And safe spaces include, um, you know, like I said, the packing, the bonding, the training, etc. But also we have youth forums. Because what we realize is uh, the initial stage when we give out the roses is awareness stage. After awareness, what we have to do is to build the understanding between the people, between different religion and races. And for that, we need to create safe spaces. So we have youth forums uh, where we invite community leaders such as ministers and members of parliament. Because when the youth have, uh, you know, have that impression that, and, and they realize that their voice is being heard by the policymakers, they feel empowered. That's what we realize. So when we do that, 
we draw more people from all walks of life. People who are skeptical. So we always tend to attract the skeptics because they feel that, you know, uh, their voice is always not heard. And, and, you know, it's always like the majority, uh, uh, whatever is being pushed up by the government, etc., is, is always the uh, agenda of the day. But when we give them this platform to discuss these issues and ask, ask hard questions, and typically the media is not invited. Well, they can cover the event after or before, but during the dialogue itself, is they can ask anything to the ministers or, or the members of parliament. So that really empowers them to step forward, to ask difficult questions, and to understand some of the nuances of why certain policies are the way it is. And interfaith conferences. So our approach to interfaith is very different from many other organizations out there. What we do is we don't just talk about the tenets or the pillars of the religion, because that's already done and dusted. A lot of us can go online, Wikipedia, whatever, we can find about a particular religion. But how many of us are actually inspired by the stories of the people of faith who do social good? So we invite the speakers uh, specially curated, like for instance, I think Dr. Mariam is on the panel here on this photo. So this Faith in Action conference was there, and prior to that, you know, Ambassador Zainal was one of our uh, speakers as well. So what we do is we invite individuals who are driven by faith. Uh, so as you see from the panel, this quick shout in, she's a Presbyterian, she's a Christian. Um, you know, Dr. Sharifa Mariam Aljani, she's a Muslim, Arab and Venerable Chuan Guan, he's a Buddhist priest. So what we do is we get people who are really doing good in the community, but are they driven by, f and, and, and how are they driven by faith, and how their religion shapes, and what values they, 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 they you know, they, uh, that shapes them to do whatever that they're doing. So when we approach it from that perspective, what happens is the youth, uh, you know, they can relate. They can relate to stories, they can relate to practical, implementable steps and, and, and you know, be inspired to do more of the initiatives and take the next step of you know, understanding to appreciation. And when I say awareness, understanding, appreciation, appreciation is when they become a volunteer, when they appreciate the nuances, when they appreciate how you know, we function and how we reach out and taking action, they become volunteer with us. And as volunteers, uh, you know, that before that, we also have this uh, recent, uh, you know, earlier this year in February, we had this symposium, Faith in Leadership, where we don't just tap on, you know, uh, the members of the parliament or ministers and uh, local civil society leaders. We also, we also brought in speakers from overseas, uh, Chris Revel from Faith in Leadership in UK, one of the, the most, uh, uh, you know, leading uh, interfaith organization in the world. And then Tion from America, you know, um, youth leadership. So we don't approach interfaith, just interfaith, but also with le youth leadership. I think that's very important. And so Connectors program, as I was sharing with you, is, so we try to move to the heartlands. You know, it's not just important, uh, you know, we do an annual event, but we go to the heartlands. So Connectors, this was at uh, Nisun GRC. So we did a GRC level event, um, you know, uh, where we also launched the Rose of this Advocates Network. So basically our volunteers are part of this Advocates Network. Uh, we, and this is the GR, so we reach out to the heartlands, we also reach out to schools, so this was at ITE College West, actually done yesterday, and uh, we work with polytechnics, universities, so we want to bring Rose of Peace closer to home, wherever they are, uh, to the heartlands, the schools, and also with organizations, this was the Singapore Kindness Movement for their Kindness Day. And, and we want to work with various stakeholders in all parts of society because we want to bring that message of peace directly to them, not expecting them to show up you know, for forums and this and that, because typically people don't. And uh, so we try to raise awareness in this regard. So um, this is something that we are really proud of. Um, so last year, uh, taking advice from our, our patron, she said that, Ishad, you are good at, uh, you know, Rosa is very good at building 
um, you know, uh, rapport with the youth and attracting them and involving them in uh, building peace in Singapore, why don't you do something of, so of sorts like an interfaith ambassador or ambassador or, or peace ambassador program? So we took that initiative, the idea, so we lost something called the Rose of Peace Ambassador Program. This is a signature initiative that, uh, you know, we launched earlier this year. Out of 90 applicants, we, we interviewed and we selected 30 applicants and appointed them for a one-year period. And uh, this appointment ceremony, what happened was they're going to focus on not just building religious harmony in Singapore, but also cross-cultural communication. They were trained on online digital media engagement. They were trained on uh, you know, some of the security issues that involve in faith, uh, um, race relations in Singapore. So we had experts from all fields coming down to train the participants for the first six months. And next six months, they're supposed to do a mini project. So what we do is, as I was sharing with you, awareness, understanding, whereby awareness is to the public, and through understanding, we have, uh, through the safe spaces that we create, we have the participants who are joining us, who then become the advocates uh, or volunteers, you know, so to speak. And when they appreciate what we're doing, why we're doing this, and when they come to the ambassador program, they become multipliers. Uh, that's the hope that, you know, we have structured the whole thing. And one of the uh, key things that we, uh, one of the highlights that we did as part of the ambassador program, one of the ambassadors said, you know what, Ishad, we have the, uh, you know, Good Friday is coming, and prior to Good Friday, they have the land period, 40 days. And many of the ambassadors didn't even know what a land period was. And, you know, many of the Singaporeans also didn't know what land period So all of us know about the public holidays, like we discussed, but do we know the nuances behind some of the traditional practices? Like, for instance, the Muslims, they have the Isra and Miraj, where Prophet, you know, ascended up to the heavens. For the Hindus and the Sikhs, they have other festivals, etc. So the idea was to reach out to them and to explain that. And we do that through, uh, it is one of the initiatives where we wrote a letter of peace to all the churches in Singapore. And we invited by the Methodist Church and all the non-denominational denominational churches, etc., to reach out to them. Digital engagement, quickly, is because the, these are youth. You can't engage them the same way and the traditional way that we have always engaged them uh, and built peace in Singapore. You have to engage them through stories. You have to engage them through uh, online interactions, etc. So we have this program called, uh, we have this online initiative, Humans of Rose of Peace, where we capture the lives of our ambassadors, as well as participants and volunteers and advocates, and people who receive the rose, uh, where they share their stories and inspire other people. So we, so we try to capture that. And ROP Faith Lift, you know, this is our online initiative as well, where we, uh, you know, basically focus on a particular uh, occasion, uh, say Palm Sunday or Land Period, or we have even, uh, you know, Isra Meraj, uh, Vaisaki for the Sikh, where we and sort of educate people on, and, on what this, uh, you know, special occasions mean, etc. So this is done online, on Facebook, on YouTube, through our WhatsApp channels, etc. And uh, recently, we launched something called the Petal Peace Ambassador, a brand ambassador. So we realized that, you know, um, my, my parting words is, Patels is a branding ambassador for Rose of Peace, and why we launched it is a fictional character, basically, but it encompasses the characteristic of today's millennials. And just like, you know, and, and, and today's millennials, and just like any other youth, Patel is one, of, one that cares for the community and is, and is now an interfaith advocate. Why we launched this online initiative of Patels is to create an intimate experience on social media, especially for youth, through storytelling, and these are powerful tools to engage the audience, but with Patels, it is exactly what we aim to do, to show that every youth is capable of being an interfaith leader, change maker in their own right, and it starts from them. So this is Petals, and you can follow us on Instagram, Rose Office, and our website, roseoffice.com and Facebook. And uh, j just want to part with our message from a patron, where she said, 
Organizations such as Rose of Peace play an important role as bridges between our communities. This role is even more crucial now as the world is experiencing increasing uncertainty and threat to social cohesion. And ground-up initiatives like Rose of Peace tend to be more agile, nimble, and able to quickly rally support, uh, as well as respond to new trends or issues. By working together, we are able, we are able to enlarge our common spaces, connect with others. So with that, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, look forward to the question and answer later. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello. Thank you so much to the organizers for uh, inviting me to share some thoughts and views. But I think this very important uh, conversation topic. Um, and um, just uh, to let you know, I'm not going to be using slides. Uh, you see, before I became a psychologist, in my previous life, I was a teacher. So teachers like to tell stories. Hard habit to break, yeah? So I'll share with you a bit of stories that, comes, that I draw from my current experiences, as well as my own personal experiences and personal stories that are very dear to me. So, uh, as I think uh, Leonard has actually shared, um, I'm here in, uh, sharing with you in my capacity as a facilitator for OPSG, One People SG, Experiential Conversations. Uh, how many of you have actually uh, participated in an experiential conversation? Okay. How many of you know what experiential conversations are? <laughs> or have heard about it? Ah, okay. <laughs> Two hands. <laughs> All right, great. So basically, just to give a, a brief overview so that you understand where the stories come from. Yeah? Uh, some, some couple of years back, uh, OPSG started this initiative. Uh, and the, the goal is very much similar to, I think, some of the key messages that the two previous speakers, and I'm sure the speakers this morning as well, have actually articulated, which is the need to create safe spaces for people in Singapore from various backgrounds, young and old, to have conversations about uh, sensitive topics that for the longest time perhaps we have pushed under the carpet or skirt around it. But there's a growing awareness that there's a need to create, to talk about this, but in a way that makes people feel safe, that it's not end up being hijacked, that people go away. Of course, we are realistic. One conversation doesn't change you overnight. But at least you leave that conversation perhaps having an opportunity to have insight about other people's opinions, about other people's views, which are different from yours. And we know that because social circles, if we leave it to nature, may not necessarily be mixed. If we, and we know that sometimes there are people who, not through any fault of theirs, have quite a limited social circle. So they may not be able to necessarily encounter experiences whereby other people have a different view from them. So the experiential conversations was designed as such. It's small, tend to, about 10 to 20 people. So I started as a participant. So you can imagine some come because they are curious. I did, <laughs> but after ex experiencing it, I see the potential value that I get from it, and I can see how, uh, as myself, uh, as my background as a psychologist and, and an educator, I can perhaps add value to it. Hence, like many others, I also became a facilitator. And so, the topic of conversations in experiential conversations is typically open-ended. There are some guiding questions. Um, and it's created to steer 
conversations and ideas about ethnicity, race, religion. Yeah? And uh, we, I'm not the only facilitator, but we've had many, many groups. Uh, we've had young, old, uh, a group of just uh, uh, professionals, medical experts. Uh, some volunteered to come. Some were volunteered by their bosses to come because, because some of these groups were actually corporate-initiated. But without exception, in every conversation that we've had, the, the issue or the, the word racial tolerance will emerge, will emanate. Right? And, and I want to spend this just uh, 15 minutes that I have to speak a little bit about that. And what I've learned from the conversations that we've had so far is this word tolerance is a very powerful word. Powerful because it evokes so much emotions in people. Right? You have some people that says tolerance. Oh yeah, we have it. Pat down. Well, we are beyond tolerance in Singapore. Uh, and, and, and I'm not caricaturizing. This is people who are genuinely believing in that. And not many people realize that. Yeah? They really believe that in Singapore, we have completely gone beyond tolerance, and what we have is harmony. At the same time, there are people who say, no, what we have is fake harmony. It's fake tolerance. You scratch a bit, and the blood leaks out. Right? And then there are people who have different take in terms of what tolerance means to them. But regardless of all the strong perceptions and emotions, one thing is consistent. Everybody agrees that tolerance is not enough. Everybody, regardless of their personal views about whether where we are in terms of tolerance, our own tolerance quotient, everybody agrees that for us to be the image of what we want to be, we have to go beyond tolerance and go towards harmony. So what does tolerance mean for me? So this is my personal view, and, and I really want to spend a lot of time, give more time to our conversations, because I really would love to hear your views and your reactions to the same idea. I don't like the word tolerance, because to me, it's tolerance and hate are two sides of the same coin. Why do I say that? Tolerance is an emotion for me, predicated by another emotion. What is the emotion that predicates tolerance? I'm better than you. I'm more superior than you. Therefore, even though I know that you are lesser, not so good, I tolerate. Yeah? So that's, that's my view. Okay? And, and I'm open that that's not, that may not be the only view. What is hate? For me, hate underpinning that hate is again that similar emotion. I am good, you are evil. I am right, you are wrong. And when that sentiment becomes intensifies, hate is the emotion that fuels us to justify why we can treat other people negatively because I'm good, you are evil. Isn't that the narrative that we are all born, uh, uh, grew up with since we are young? Good triumphs over bad. Yeah? So even our cartoons, isn't it? seems to, to emphasize that narrative. So for me, uh, I don't just see tolerance as something that we need to go beyond. I think tolerance is something that we need to 
uh, sidestep, <laughs> if possible. And really ask ourselves, what is harmony that we, are, that we are seeking for? And if harmony is that goal that you want, what is the underpinning, what is the predicate emotions that we need to nurture in ourselves in order to fuel that harmony? Why? why uh, you may ask, why, why is the emotions behind a particular attitude so important to me? In some ways, it relates to what I feel as what is harmony all about. It is true that knowledge about cultures are important. It is true that understanding, learning about other cultures is important. But throughout the conversations that we've had in the ECs and own, my own personal experience, what I've come to uh, understand is that harmony has nothing to do about what you know of me. Harmony is how you make me feel. If I'm a minority and you are a majority, harmony is how I feel in your presence. In some circles, I may be a minority, but in some circles, I may be a, major, uh, a majority. Right? If, if I invite some of you, like the, the uh, photograph shown by Mr. Hon, if I invite some of you to, to an iftar, you are automatically a minority and the Muslims are the majority in that context. So, it's really about how we make each other feel in spite of the difference that to me is a harmony. It's the basis or the emotions that, that fuels harmony. So, to me, in order to, to drive towards that harmony, the key effort that I think is needed is really to think about how we can develop empathy, genuine empathy among all of us, and among our children and our children's children. And um, this is where, again, sometimes um, I hear so many different views, right? And invariably, in our, uh, 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 and this comes up too in the uh, experiential conversation, because when we talk about differences in culture, there will, more than one time, somebody will suggest, oh, what we need is, you know, the schools to start teaching uh, children about uh, different re uh, religions that should go in the syllabus. You know, uh, we should have uh, bring back uh, religious education whereby we learn about each other's different religion. And then you see that if there's a teacher in the company, they'll just freak out, right? Because uh, there was a recent survey that asked teachers, you know, what are the topics that you are comfortable to talk about and what are, what are you fearful about? And the two topics that most educators shy away from is actually race and religion. Because it is difficult. So I think um, while we need to create safe platforms where information about differences in religion and race are being talked about and shared, that's important. But I feel that beyond that, we need to think about empathy. And empathy is something that I believe you can start when a child is three years old. And I want to share with you uh, and drawing from my own personal experiences, my own personal stories of what empathy means in the context of religious tolerance or religious harmony. Um, these two stories are dear to me because they are about my family members, uh, but separated by six generations. Okay? So the first is, I think uh, you've heard in the introduction, my great, 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 I got it right, three great grandfather, Said Umar Aljunet. 
So he came from Yemen uh, to Palembang and landed in Singapore in 1819. So in 1819, yes, he was a foreign talent, <laughs> a new citizen, if you like, to Singapore. So at that time, what happened was uh, he acquired uh, a few lands through auctions, which was happening at that time. And he was a tradesman, but he also donated a lot of his land uh, for, for public good. Uh, Tandosik Hospital was one of the land that he donated to, as well as uh, the, the first mosque in Singapore, the oldest mosque in Singapore today, which is the Majid Umar. Somewhere in 1820, Raffles approached him and said, hey, I need a piece of land uh, for a place of worship of another community. And that's where he gave away the piece of land that is now the St. Andrew's Cathedral, which Raffles later allocated to the Anglican community. And I, so this story I've heard since young. So uh, when my, my late father was alive, I had, uh, I'm very close to him. Mr. Zainal knows him very well. And, and I often ask him, like, uh, wasn't he, like, frightened? What was his, you know, philosophical? Didn't he have, like, philosophical debates within himself about the right and wrong of that and, you know, and all that, all that complexity? And I remember my, my late father looking at me puzzled. I said, no, Yam. I mean, he calls me Yam. No, Yam, Mariam. He said, you know, it's, it's very simple. If God is important to you, God is important to everyone else. And that, to me, in so few words, encapsulate empathy. Do you, the Said Umar, understand the complexity of the Anglican faith? He, he knew they were of a different faith. But what drive his motive, what sustained his action, was understanding that he believed in God, and God was strongly in his heart. So if prayer was important to him, then prayer is important for everyone. He understood that, he connected that to that emotion. So that's one example. Another more recent example is my daughter, when she was five years old. Uh, and I deliberately chose a different context because some of you may say, yeah, that was like 200 years ago, come on, you know. Come back to the 21st century, Maria. <laughs> okay. So, and this is in my previous home, I used to live in Sims Drive, if you know where that is. So, uh, she's an only daughter. And uh, a block away is another neighbor who's also an only daughter at the same age. So they went into the play group together. That's how they met and they clicked, Eileen. And so Eileen's mom and I always see each other. So um, one day I was walking home with my daughter and it used to be that period uh, the, the Chinese would actually pray by burning the... Uh, uh, the, the money, yeah, for, as, as, as a form of uh, worship, right? Yeah. So, of course, you know, the place was full of smoke and all that. So I was walking home, and then, um, so she asked me, uh, why are you doing that? So I said, oh, they are praying. Uh, and then uh, she asked me, what for? Oh, I think it's for, uh, to pray for their loved ones who have passed away, grandfather. And we walked past, and we saw Eileen's mom, doing the same thing, burning the joystick, deep in prayer, and crying. So my daughter looked at me and said, Mama, Elise's mother is sad. Just as sad as you were when granddad passed away. So, 
Does she need to know the complexity of the Taoist uh, philosophy? No. What she needed to know was that when Elin's mom was burning the joystick and crying, that smoke carries her prayer up to where she, she thinks her father is. And that emotion is exactly the same emotion in me when I'm on my prayer mat praying for the well-being of my late father. So I think that, that empathy is something that we must recognize, we must identify, and we must nurture. Because I think there's no way of keeping up with how philosophies, ideologies will change. Right? Even if you talk about Islam now, there's so many different... I can't keep up, right? I, I try to, but I can't, because there's so many different diversities within religion, let alone across religion. But if you hang on to that emotion called empathy, I think at least steadily, I didn't say easily, steadily perhaps, we can go towards this vision, this aspiration that we dream about together, and that's called harmony. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Horn, Dr. Mariam, and Urshad for sharing very personal stories at times that um, uh, to me really showed, I guess, as we are all humans, I guess, uh, and there are certain things that unite us. And if we, we highlight this or we focus on these things that unite us, that are common among us, uh, that is the key to building, as Dr. Mariam says, uh, empathy and moving from just mere tolerance to empathy, understanding, and uh, real social cohesion and social harmony. Uh, with that, I would like to open the floor to questions. I ask that you please identify your name and organization and try to keep your questions short so we can have as many people asking questions as possible. Uh, yes, the lady in white, please. Take a few questions, or uh, yeah, is there, yeah. are there any more questions? Okay, oh, yes. the guy in blue. Good afternoon. My name is Swan. I'm from Roses of Peace. Uh, I have two questions. One is for Dr. Hoon, and one is do for Dr. Mariam. F Dr. Mariam, first, um, how do you inculcate empathy in schools, especially when you mention that we we, we are shying away from such topic? Raises of religion being discussed in school, and not all teachers are equipped to, to teach empathy, or they do not even have empathy in the first place, because we are in the midst of graduations, uh, NUS, NTU, and I didn't remember being taught about empathy in our uh, curriculum. So that's first. Second is uh, to Dr. Hoon. I may miss this in your presentation, so if I did, I apologize. But how do you internally ensure that within uh, Hua Chong, for example, SAP school, you do have a good significant intake of uh, people or students from different races or religion so that it's easier for the teachers to teach empathy internally in the school 
without having to engage external party, like for example, maybe collaborate with Rose of Peace. So internally within the school, the student can learn how to interact across races and religion. Thank you. Okay, I think all of us have a question to answer. So, <laughs> um, thanks for the question and thanks for the encouraging words. Rose of Peace, Roses is not cheap. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of money. And last year, um, you know, uh, 10,000 roses, it, it doesn't come cheap either. How we raise funds, uh, we were, in, when we started off, we were a grown-up initiative, so we weren't an registered organization. You know, we didn't have a bank account, neither did we have any other support system. And that was in September when Charlie Hebdo happened. So we decided, let's do Rose of Peace on, at that time it wasn't called Rose of Peace, either. we didn't know what we were going to do. So we, when we figured that we were going to do Roses with attached greeting with, with sayings of peace, we said, uh, let's do it on 10, 11, 12, 10th of November, 2012. So that's the first day that we did ROP. And, uh, and how we raised funds was, uh, you know, um, in, incredibly, I don't know, there was a kind soul who, who came forward to say, you know, he will supply us the roses. So we were happy that happened. But subsequently, we realized that, that's, you know, we can't always rely on kind souls. And, you know, when reality sinks in, we figured out that, um, you know, so we tap on Harmony Fund. Um, you know, MCCY has a fund called Harmony Fund, so we tap on that. We also tap on Singapore Kindness Movement. They've got the Singapore Kindness Fund. And uh, so as a grown-up organization, we can't raise funds because we're not a charity. We're not allowed to raise funds, public donations, etc. So we don't do that. Neither do we get sponsorship because typically sponsors want to sponsor, um, you know, uh, they have, you need to have a registered entity to be able to do that. So as a grown-up initiative back then, we found it really difficult. So however, we partner with different organizations. So we partner with Jamia, we partner with uh, SMU, we partner with different organizations to sort of co-do it. And uh, they don't come with the money, but however, we, when we tap on the grants, so the grants sort of uh, you know, offsets the costs. When we register ourselves now, um, you know, now it's easier for us to uh, do a lot more things. And, uh, you know, same thing, we tap on the grants. So I think that's something that a lot of youth should capitalize on. Uh, there's tons of opportunities and tons of uh, uh, grants available to do, pursue whatever interest that you have. Uh, in, and when we have Rose, uh, Rose Abyss collaborate with uh, One People at SG, they don't give us the money, but they give us the space, you know, to do our activities, etc. So in kind. So we just leverage on existing resources available uh, to maximize their utility and also you know, uh, do our outreach and have our events, etc. Okay, I'm lucky. I, I have no problem with budget. <laughs> <laughs> because whenever I'm short of money, I just um, ask my old boy to donate. As simple as that. Right? So it's not too difficult for me to do that. So the second question is about how to bring in uh, students from different races to come to Hua Chong. I think uh, this is difficult huh? because uh, in the first place, it's not easy to get into Hua Chong. Right? So your PSLE score must be very high before you can get in. Uh, and because we're SAP school, I think all students must take uh, Chinese as a, as a first language or second language. So again, uh, not many non-Chinese would like to do that. Right? So do, we do have about 1% or so, including uh, DPM Dapan's three sons, all went through Hua Chong, taking higher Chinese, and they did very well. Okay? No, it's not impossible, but it's difficult to, uh, to encourage people to put aside their mother tongue and take Chinese as uh, as for first or second language in, in Hua Chong. Uh, if I had my way, I would prefer to open up the schools a little bit more by, by taking in students who want to take Chinese as the third language right, to experience SAP life. Right? So, but of course, uh, if I can't solve problem in one particular way, I prefer to solve problem in another way. Right? If I can't have full-time students in high school to interact with uh, students in Hua Chong, I open up the campus 
to students who are from a partner school to come in to interact with our students. And we can also send our students out to interact with people. Right? Why should interaction be taking place in, in my campus? Right? So there are many other ways to solve the same problem. Right? So that's how we have been uh, doing. If you missed my, my talk just now, maybe I can give you a remedial lesson later on. Yeah, okay. yeah. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that uh, nice question about how do we put, uh, can we put empathy into the syllabus? Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, empathy is not uh, a head knowledge, right? Uh, it's not a knowledge that we um, uh, can memorize and then regurgitate. Neither is it a skill that if you practice, you learn, you, you model, you mirror, and you practice but it doesn't touch your heart, you can be good. Uh, no, it doesn't. It's, it actually belongs to a whole realm of competency that involves the attitudes, the worldview, and it's really about emotions. So, so for emotions, uh, to me, a, a key question is, can we nurture that emotions? What can we do to nurture the emotions called empathy? And um, there are certain skills uh, that may facilitate uh, the development of empathy, which we can... Which we can uh, teach, instruct, or create opportunities for. Okay? So what would that be? One would be for, for, uh, for empathy to thrive. You need opportunities to recognize similarity. How you can do that? Similarity, of course, differences. There are many ways. You, you need not have one particular subject called, let's talk about empathy, and here's your empathy teacher. In any subjects, you can have a recognition that, although it's different, what are the similarities? Yeah? And that, that could be many ways. The other... The other important thing that, uh, and is in the skill, uh, in the realm of skills, and therefore can be taught, is the opportunity to learn how to deal with differences. So, for empathy to be to be nurtured, having an opportunity to recognize, hey, we are the same despite differences, is one important component. But you also need to learn how to deal with differences, and this is a skill that I must say, sometimes must be really taught sometimes must be explicitly taught. Because one of the things um, that in, in my work as a psychologist and as an educator, it's very interesting because we sometimes work with children, and these are children that I work with, who have uh, social communication difficulties, and they have some problems uh, having natural or, or intuitive empathy. And one of the key skills deficit is that they don't distinguish between an opinion and a fact. So if, to them, this water is yucks, or that food is not nice, that's a fact. So if you think that that food is not so yucks, you are wrong, because my opinion is a fact. So they don't have this ability to distinguish between, yeah, that's what you think, that's your view, that's your opinion, and that's not a fact. So, and I think in my work with uh, those kind of children, we actually go through a series of, um, of, of explicit teaching that makes the child understand, ah, I get it. That's the difference between a fact and an opinion. So, I think blue is the most beautiful color in the world. Right? I know that that's not a fact, it's my opinion. So, if you come and tell me, no, red is the most beautiful color in the world, I don't end up hating you, having an argument with you, and want to kill you because yeah, so that's your opinion. If I recognize that, fine, I can live with it. I'm, I'm still happy with my blue and you, you're red. But then I don't go into loggerheads, right? 
pets children. Sometimes I feel not only children need that. Huh? <laughs> yes, I think that's something that perhaps we should open up to a wider circle. But that is often something that we take for granted uh, in our work. And, um, and, and I don't think, uh, and I think this too, if you think about it, opportunities to recognize similarities and opportunities to learn, uh, to deal with differences, definitely a school have a part. But you know the motherhood statement? It takes a village to raise a child, right? Mm -hmm. Because these opportunities often come when you least expect. When you're working and, you know, there's a, suddenly there's a smoke outside and because joysticks are burning, that's your opportunity. So as a parent, as an individual, do you see that as a nuisance or do you see that as an opportunity for you to actually teach your child, your neighbor, your nephew, whoever, that eh, maybe we can recognize similarities uh, in this and maybe we can learn to deal with the difference that we experience in this. Thank you. Professor, more questions? Prof. Noisha? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for uh, sharing all your reflections and your views. I just want to ask Mr. Hong a question. Um, that, um, you talked about the changing profile of the students, right? um, um, the school teaching children of migrants, the one that has changed considerably uh, over the decades. But I just want to ask you for the another dimension, which is that more recently there's been a lot of debates and discussion about um, the dominance of uh, students from uh, a more elitist group, a more elitist class, making their way into elitist schools. And I'm sure Bachchan probably is not an exception uh, as far as this um, development is concerned. I just wonder to what extent has such a uh, development impacted on the school's philosophy Prof. Noisha. Dr. Hon and I were actually talking about this topic of elitism and elites over lunch, so I think he should be prepared to answer this question. Uh, we'll take one more question from okay. this side of the room. Uh, 
Hi, Serena Pang here, um, local advocate for uh, the arts and tech community. So through a process of education and re-education, we aim to be cohesive, united and harmonious. The question is, is cohesion and unity amongst different people inherent or performative? Multi-ethnic Singapore is a fact, but is multi-ethnic Singapore cohesive, cohesionness? Is it a performative? Um, do we perform cohesion? Do we perform unity? Um, if we do, if it's a performance or performative, how do we rise above that? Uh, not to put our panelists in a spot, but as policy influencers and researchers, uh, would you rather deal with a Singapore that, that broadly performs cohesion and unity, but could be inwardly brooding and dissatisfied? Or would you rather have acts of uncohesiveness or feelings of discontentment right from the start so we know about the issues honestly from the get-go? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Noor, shall we start? Maybe la one last question before we turn it to the panellists. Perhaps you can tackle the questions in order. Uh, maybe Dr. Horn first on the question of elites and elitism. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time this question of elitism is uh, posted to me because usually question on elitism always go to RI. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to answer? <laughs> okay, please. Hua Chong, perhaps Hua Chong is basically, uh, we are still fundamentally a Chinese school. In fact, uh, students from Hua Chong are very pretty humble. In fact, lots of feedback from uh, the potential employers, including a lot of interviewers uh, from PSD and so on. They have been telling me, hey, your students have been too humble, right? Uh, and, and they always play down their own abilities and they always speak uh, very low about themselves, though they are able to do a lot more things. So they are advising me to teach my students to be more confident and uh, to project their abilities, their doing interviews and so on. So I guess because of this humble nature of the students that uh, nobody asked me a question about elitism. Yeah, so it's not a problem for us. Yeah. So I hope I have answered you. <laughs> Uh, the second question is a bit philosophical. I think Sharifa can handle it better. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm actually going to address Aisha's question uh, about uh, you know, uh, why, why we don't see the same extent or same type of, of generosity that we had maybe five generations ago. Okay, uh, first I must set the record straight, okay? Yes, my great-great-great-grandfather gave away land. After 200 years, I'll donate no more land. I don't have swathes of land to go away. So please, if you're having ideas, I'm sorry to tell you that <laughs> I don't have any more land to give away, right? After 200 years, it's either sold off, given away, or taken away by Land Acquisition Act. 
that's another conversation. <laughs> so, so I just want to set the record straight. And I think um, in Singapore, today, land is so scrapped. I think it's, it's uh, rare if not people actually donating land, but they still do. But I, I don't think that is the mode in which people contribute anymore. Not the majority of us, anyways. Yes. Julian is saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes, right? Okay. So, but I think uh, the idea of contributing uh, to your community and beyond your community, uh, in my experience, and, and I've been involved in community services uh, at various levels, the community level, at uh, you know, beyond the community, at disability groups, I'm also uh, involved in NCSS and Muhammadiyah. Uh, I think it's thriving pretty well, right? But perhaps the difference is that one, when it comes to donate, okay, uh, the more common with people giving money, right? Uh, and I think uh, that's where in Singapore, perhaps, I think it's not so simple as, uh, as people not wanting to give to another faith. That might be true for, true for some people, but what I understand is in terms of contributing financially to uh, VWOs or social service agencies, most donors want to give to an agency that uh, two criteria. One, that agency really needs it financially, right? Not too healthy a reserve, right? It means you really want to give people that want it. Secondly, they want to see that you are doing something that they can connect with, whether it's education, whether it's, uh, you know, something concrete. And, and uh, I volunteer for the Muhammadiyah home, and we've had people of all religions and races contributing that way. And I know of people, through my work with NCSS, of Muslims contributing similarly, financially, to other, to other uh, non-Muslim organizations, underpinned by the same fact. They look for organizations whereby they know uh, may need that money more. And we know, again, with, because perhaps uh, the Muslim community is smaller, uh, and some of the donors to Muhammad Home tell me that. I, I'm actually giving this because I know uh, some of the organizations that I used to give to, which are the, the majority uh, of the majority groups, uh, I know that they're better off. So they actually seek out for that reason. So I think there's, a, uh, there's that dimension as well that we need to, we need to uh, take into account. Although I agree with you, there might be still some, some hesitation. Uh, so I don't think it's so simple. Uh, the most common and most valuable thing that people give away is actually time. That's the most valuable thing that we have because once you give it, you never give it back. And money cannot buy you time, right? And I think in that, that's where I think we can do a lot more uh, in terms of encouraging people to see the time that we give to others, uh, where the cause is useful, where the cause is beneficial, where the cause resonates with uh, values, that is universal should be recognized. And I think uh, sometimes the problem is people who transcend those racial boundaries, they prefer to be quiet. I know quite a number of them, right? I, I too uh, contribute to non-Muslim organizations, and, but uh, usually the motivation is not to be seen. Right? So I don't know whether we don't showcase these people enough, these people are very shy, you know, they are pathologically uh, publicity averse, <laughs> that, that they shy away from that. So perhaps we need to think about uh, how do we recognize them uh, and how do we perhaps um, do it in a way that is uh, dignified, you know, because it can become a caricature whereby you, you know, you get that one Malay who, you know, donate to one non-Malay organization and you play it up like a rara, which which sometimes uh, that individual may not like as well. So I think it's, it's a complex issue. It needs to be handled delicately, but I think it's, it's much more complex than simply people not being comfortable 
to, to give beyond their boundaries because in my personal experience on the ground, uh, that is happening more than most people are aware of. Thanks for the question. <laughs> the, I think you, you raised a good point because we have been discussing internally as a committee and also as Rose of Peace, how do you want to move forward? Because what we focused on a lot was all the you know, happy things, uh, you know, things that get people together. But there are a lot of thorny issues. I mean, roses doesn't come with just the rose, but it comes with the thorns. So, so we have to also address them at some point. And for intra-religious, uh, at, at this point in time, we have the, um, you know, um, the position that, yes, we attend a lot of these. Uh, I mean, we work with many organizations. If you take uh, the, the, the Muslim organizations, for instance, amongst the Muslims, the Sunni Shia divide, the sectarianism. Uh, so we work with uh, a lot of my, my VPs are Shia as well. So we've got a lot of, uh, uh, you know, people from, you know, various, you know, from the Baha'i, from... Uh, just the Muslims itself, so we engage them, but we haven't done anything specifically with them, for instance. Also for the Christians, the denominational, non-denominational, we have engaged all of them. So we were on friendly terms with everyone, but we haven't got an opportunity to bring them all together. But I think moving forward, perhaps not this year, next year, but in future, we are looking at how we can bring them together to work together and things like that. Even for the Buddhists, we work with Soka, we work with other Buddhist organizations, but themselves, they don't see eye to eye sometimes, but uh, we are youth, so, and, and as long as they are committed towards building peace in Singapore, we engage them. So that's for intra-religious, uh, you know, perspective. Class issues, uh, really we don't, we haven't focused on that per, per se, to be honest, but what we do is provide them the platform through various engagement activities. So we have IT students beside a student from NUS, for instance, from Madrasa, from SAP schools, etc. So as long as, as much as possible, when, they, when they're grouped into various locations for the distribution of roses, etc., we group them as diverse as possible, so that they have an opportunity to meet someone of different background, different class, different um, you know, racial and religious background. So that way we hope that you know, we build that friendship or at least break some barriers. So we try to engineer that as much as possible. But in terms of discussion of such issues, uh, we haven't gone into that yet. And uh, the ideologies, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, I, I can promote our upcoming conference. So we are focused on all the good things for now, uh, you know, the happy topics, you know, faith in action, et cetera, this and that, diversity, uh, you know, unity, harmony. Our upcoming conference is gonna be uh, violence in the name of religion, where we're gonna look at all the four major religion and what are the pain points in every religion? And we're going to get uh, you know, experts to speak about that. So we're also looking at uh, how we can address these thorny issues uh, in a way that is more engaging and intellectual as well before we go down to the ground and you know, get the youth to be discussing about such issues. Yeah. Thanks, Ashad. I think Serena had a question on how can we rise above performance? Uh, any of you would like to tackle that? Question. If I could like rephrase it, Serena, do you mean can we move beyond tolerance to more harmony and engagement and friendships across the races? You've just reframed the topic to my topic. <laughs> okay, it's okay. No, I think it's fine. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, okay, again, I'll just share with you uh, what has often come up in the experiential conversation. And one issue that sometimes we have an interesting debate is uh, this, this value of having friends of different races. 
It's quite interesting because while generally obviously, yeah, I know it's in, the way to have opportunities to share differences is to have friends of different races. But then again, there's other people who hold different views, different opinions. Not fact, but opinions. And they say, no, why should, I don't have any friends of a different race, but I'm fine. Why do I need to have a friend of a different race? I, I can still be respectful. I know, I can read up, I can Google, as they do now, anything about Malay weddings, death, and funerals, uh, not a problem. So, genuinely, and, and this is not, not creating, they genuinely don't get it. Why is it that you need to have friends of a different race? I had someone who says, you know, uh, I'm a GP, I'm in a, I, my clinic is in a neighborhood. Mariam, I see more Malays, that, I bet I see more Malays every day than you do. Mm. Because, you know, my clinic is there, I see every day. So it takes a while before suddenly the penny drop. When you, when you are a doctor and you see, what, 80 patients, let's assume all of them of a different race from you, there's something in that interaction. It's called unequal power. Unequal power is an antithesis to friendship. Unequal power does not reside in a friendship relationship. Uh, that thing is almost like that thing that went in his head <laughs> when we came to that landing point. Because that's, that is the crux. That is why friendship is so important. Because it's not about how many people that you interact with. It's whether your interaction is on reciprocal basis. Because that's what friendship gives you. And if your interactions to other people is purely a client, a customer, or someone that either you serve or serves you, that's where the unequal power lies, then it's not quite there. Thank you. I think let me just add on a bit. Uh, as doing my presentation, I shared uh, four levels that Roses look at. First one is awareness. Uh, in our public engagement, we talk about, you know, we, when we outreach to people who are on the streets, etc., we share with them about the interfaith message and about you know, diversity, about you know, cultural appreciation, etc. After awareness, what we feel is the next stage is them becoming a participant, attending the conferences, attending the forums. At the intellectual discourse, we talk about understanding uh, the different, you know, the nuances behind certain practices, the traditions, the religion, etc. After once they are done understanding, we hope you know, many of them become our volunteers, our advocates. So that is the level of appreciation. The fact that they're able to appreciate the differences and they're able to advocate for it and advocate across religious and racial divides. Uh, we, you know. so, and then the top layer of the pyramid, we have uh, ambassadors. So the ambassador program, they're really multipliers. So I think coming back to your question, uh, when you talk, are we able to rise above? Uh, what we realized is that um, when we launched the ambassador program, we thought we were probably going to get five people signing up or 10 people signing up, but we had 90 applicants. And this is a one-year commitment. And these people are working adults, and these people are young working adult students um, in universities, going to universities, just graduated, etc. So it's a very diverse background. One of the, the first person to ask the question, one Mohammed, he's also one of the roles of his ambassador. So, and you'll be surprised when you give them the platform, the youth, they are willing to step forward and perform and to be engaged and also multiply in the sense that one of our ambassadors, uh, in fact, her friend was inspired by what she's doing at Rose of Peace and she started her own initiative. And we've got like several cases of such things whereby people start their own small grown-up initiative because they're inspired by what they see their peers are doing. So I think um, we can move beyond that. I think there are avenues for us to do, do that. And if you don't have the avenue, just create one. So what's stopping you, right? Yeah.
Okay, let me add to what Sharifah have said. Uh, I think I totally agree with her that uh, tolerance is really not enough. So the next best thing I could do uh, was to to help our students to learn to be uh, respectful. Okay, so respectful mind is something that we have been uh, strongly advocating. Uh, having said that, I must say some of the, the other students who have initiated certain programs like uh, the Project Integrate that I mentioned, uh, they, I think they have reached the empathy level because they actually spent one whole year working with migrant workers. They spent time working with them, uh, looking after them, and, uh, and uh, having fun to, together with them. So this group of students probably have reached the level of empathy. Right? But I wouldn't say all students in Hua Chong. Uh, but I can see more and more things are, are being done. For example, uh, when our student uh, went to uh, Surabaya doing uh, community service with ITE students, they spent two weeks together. That kind of interaction, yes, I think they can forge very strong uh, friendship. Again, it can uh, lead to empathy. Uh, and before I retired, I started another program. I invited students from other schools, cluster schools, to, to join our boarding school program where students from, uh, from uh, other schools are coming in to, uh, to actually live together with our students for half a year right, within the boarding school. So to me, that kind of program will have a potential to forge very, very close friendship. I hope more can be done, uh, right? but it's not my business anymore. Uh, I'm retired. <laughs> can volunteer. <laughs> On that note, uh, the timekeeper is, uh, is ringing the bell constantly. So just to wrap up, uh, uh, it's been a very inspiring uh, session. I think my, my key takeaway is that uh, we can all make a difference. Okay? We can all be champions for interracial harmony, interracial understanding, and uh, I think like Urshad just alluded to it earlier, if you want to do something, you can do it. You can be the one uh, pushing people towards, from mere tolerance towards understanding and engagement, and you can be the one crossing that bridge and making a friend of another race, of another religion. So on that note, uh, I would like to thank our panelists, our three panelists. Thank you a lot for being in the firing line and accepting our invitation, and I hope you uh, enjoy the rest of the, today's session. Thank you. I think just, uh, um, you know, um, last thing. I think Dr. Hoon said he's retired now. He can't do anything. I think you can still do a lot of things. You can volunteer with us, and so can everyone else. <laughs>